Hey everybody, I'm Alistair Stevens, and this is the ninth part of There and Back Again, our exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth. This week, we're going to cover chapters 9 and 10 of The Hobbit, Barrels Out of Bond, and a warm welcome. And I apologize if I misled anyone at the end of last week's session when I said that we were only going to cover chapter 9. I should have read my own schedule just a little more carefully. It's actually chapters 9 and 10, as I said. In these chapters, Bilbo plies his burglarious trade in the Hall of the Elven King, bundles his buddies into barrels, and then escapes downriver to Lake Town, where we meet... Well, we meet an interesting cast of characters. We'll talk more about that at the end of tonight's session. Thank you all so much for joining me here. I see Jackie and Bonnie and Fina. That's a great name. I think Fina's joining us perhaps for the first time. And Danny and Robert's here. And just a, a host of very fine folks joining us this evening. And I want to begin this evening's session with a question. I didn't expect Chapter 9 to be as contentious as it turned out to be. But I've had a lot of feedback this last week telling me that chapter 9 is either the best chapter in the book or the worst chapter in the book. And I'm very curious about that response because it is absolutely a part of a different story. It absolutely feels like, well, I was going to say a relic of an earlier version of The Hobbit, though I'm not entirely sure that that's true. It feels certainly more adventuresome and simultaneously more fairy-like. This is a unique environment. We are never, in fact, even when we visit uh, Lothlorien in, the, in the, the Lord of the Rings, we're never going to visit uh, a setting quite like the Hall of the Elvish King. And I think that that lends an interesting aspect. It, it casts a certain curious light on what unfolds, particularly in Chapter 9. Chapter 10 is a thing unto itself. Chapter 10 is at least a little more familiar. It almost feels as though we're returning to the Shire right there at the end of chapter 10. But, well, let's stick with chapter 9 for now. So call out and let me know what you think of chapter 9. As Dylan says here in the YouTube chat, it was the best of chapters, it was the worst of chapters, and of course, it can be both of those things simultaneously. That's the wonder of fiction, you guys. While you are commenting on your thoughts on chapter 9, though, I want to read... Uh, a short slide here, a short excerpt from a, a, a work not by J.R.R. Tolkien. This is, gosh, is this the first thing that I've read not by J.R.R. Tolkien in the span of this, uh, this seminar series? This is a quote that I referenced last week, I think, from Terry Pratchett's Discworld novel, Lords and Ladies. And it encapsulates one of the perspectives on elves with which I think Tolkien would have been entirely sympathetic. Elves are wonderful. They provoke wonder. Elves are marvelous. They cause marvels. Elves are fantastic. They create fantasies. Elves are glamorous. They project glamour. Elves are enchanting. They weave enchantment. Elves are terrific. They beget terror. The thing about words is that meanings can twist just like a snake, and if you want to find snakes... Look for them behind words that have changed their meaning. No one ever said elves are nice. Elves are bad. I adore, as I'm sure you all do, Terry Pratchett. I adore Lords and Ladies specifically because of its perspective on entirely this subject. The realm of fairy, the otherworldly enchantment so common to elves. And what Pratchett has remembered here, what Pratchett has encapsulated so beautifully here, is that elves are strange in the truest sense of the word. Elves are otherworldly. They are not like us. 
And last week, I talked a little about the ways in which the societies of men and dwarves and hobbits can be lumped together into those mortal lives within the realm of Arda, within the realm of Middle-earth. Elves are always other. And the wood elves are more other than most. There is an interesting, a fascinating comparison to be drawn here between the depiction of Rivendell on the one hand and the realm of the elf king on the other. This is a much more magical, much more, much more mystical almost place. This is a place of enchantment, of glamour, of terror. This, I think, was communicated beautifully in the movie adaptation of, of The Hobbit, but or the movie adaptations of The Hobbit, I should say. Though the depiction of the elves was not always as successful as one might have liked, I think that the depiction of this realm really stands apart for me as, as one of the most successful pieces of adaptation in that series. But as we enter into this chapter, and this, I think, is one of the reasons which... This is one of the reasons that people can be left cold by this chapter or can be completely swept up by this chapter. It is impossible to forget that this is otherworldly. Even the details of regular mundane life, even when the butler and the guard are getting happily sloshed on wine, this is still treacherous. And that is the key to understanding fairy, I think. That fairy is not malevolent. That fairy is not cruel. Though I guess fairy can be cruel in its aspect, it is not in its function, not in its purpose. And here, of course, I'm using fairy, capital F, as the, the preferred term for the realm of fairy, for this otherworldly environment. Fairy beguiles, fairy enchants, fairy seduces, and then destroys. It makes you want and then destroys you through the wanting, oftentimes by giving you exactly what it is that you want. Yes. Uh, Death or Glory Toad here on Twitter says, just about every chapter in this book is a unique chapter, maybe indistinguishable as a common best and worst. Chapter nine is a whole brand, uh, it, excuse me, chapter nine is a whole new brand of elves, the first real encounter with men and the farthest west you can really go. I think there's definitely something to be made about, uh, to be made of the the self-contained episodic nature of The Hobbit as we arrive at these chapters. And this is, of course, the first time that we are looking at, at two chapters together, or, or, or this is the first time that we are looking at two separate events so closely combined. And I do think that there's a stark delineation there. As we transit from fairy back into the realm of the mundane, we cross a purposeful and, and emphatic threshold. Bilbo actually pauses to acknowledge that threshold, and we'll talk about that in, in a little while. Yes, I meant East, said Death or Glory Toad. I know you meant East. I, I almost edited as I was reading and then didn't. Yes. <laughs> oh, I should say too, because I just launched right into this tonight because I'm talking about chapter nine and wanted your feedback on chapter nine. I should say too that you can, of course, leave your comments here on Twitter using the hashtag SW again, that's S-W-A-G-A-I-N, or you can leave your comments here in the YouTube chat where I can see them unfolding before me. The, um, the problem I should say I'm having tonight, the, the technical trouble that is bedeviling me this evening, is a complete inability to log into Discord. Apparently there is some kind of problem with the Discord servers that is preventing me from logging in, so I'm afraid that I don't have access to the usual Discord chat. I'm not sure that anyone does. If you are in Discord listening to me right now, I can only apologize and say that I cannot see what you are saying this evening. So come join us in the YouTube chat. Come join us on Twitter. We're, we're friendly and welcoming, I promise. Good. Um, Oh, uh, um, I, I believe it's Rachel, R.A. Maloche, 
Ramaloch. I'm not sure how to pronounce your surname. I'm just going to continue to call you Ramaloch because I like that so much. Uh, how much of this episodicness is due to it being aimed at children? I'm not entirely sure. That's a very interesting question. Um, children's books of the time certainly would would lend themselves toward this kind of episodic, almost almost rhythmic, almost periodic adventure, but usually not quite as distinct and delineated as the chapters in The Hobbit. And certainly this will not last. This will not endure as we move into The Lord of the Rings. There we'll get a much more conventional structure. But there is a sense in which in which each chapter can be enjoyed on its own. And I wonder about the rhythm of, in particular, reading to children. I wonder about, about sitting at a bedside and reading The Hobbit aloud and read it. Okay, we'll read one chapter. Tonight we'll read chapter nine. We'll get The Elf King. It's a really great chapter. And then we'll close. And then when we come back tomorrow, we'll read chapter 10 and we'll get Lake Town and Man and celebrations and songs. That's a really interesting perspective. I like that a lot. Yes. Good. David says, what do we make of the close proximity of the elves and the spiders? Seems like the elves would be more aggressively fitting them. He's written here, but I think he means fighting them. Um, yes, the, the exclusionist almost principle of the elves here, this, this reclusive, uh, self-contained quality that the elves possess is absolutely fascinating. And I think that we could happily spend the next hour probably picking apart the mysteries of Mirkwood. And there was a certain amount of conversation in the wake of last week's discussion about flies and spiders, because Mirkwood is fascinating. Mirkwood is complex, because Mirkwood isn't just on the fringe between the wild, which is already fascinating and engaging, and fairy, which is fascinating and engaging in an entirely different way. But Mirkwood occupies this, this odd, challenging space where we have to disentangle what is true of Mirkwood at its best and what is true of Mirkwood as a consequence of the necromancer's corruption from his, his citadel fortress at Dol Guldur. We need, which of course we barely know about within the pages of The Hobbit, but that is the malign influence that is spreading through Mirkwood. Are the spiders native to Mirkwood? Well, it is possible. Certainly if we assume that the spiders or, or perhaps a less malevolent, more harmonious version of the spiders are, are native to Mirkwood, then that could explain why the elves themselves are not challenged by them, because part of fairy is that, that you live harmoniously with your environment. That's one of the challenges that faces the mortal mind and body when you enter into the realm of fairy. The elves presumably would be able to coexist fairly happily with the natural ecosystem of Mirkwood, but drawing that dividing line, trying to unpick exactly what it is that that separates the natural magic of Mirkwood from the corruption of Mirkwood, that's been occupying me a lot this week. I've been thinking a lot and, and talking to a few of you about the Black Stream and about the enchantment that befalls those who plunge into its depths. And the more that I think about it, the more certain I am that the enchantment is a product of the stream itself. But it has been twisted. The enchantment has been twisted as the stream has been twisted. And partly, I think that speaks to a powerful tradition in fairy stories. When you slip into the waters of the black stream, you, on the one hand, fall into a deep sleep, fall into a, a profound magical slumber. But on the other, you lose your memory. And one of those two things is very common in fairy stories. The enchanted sleep is absolutely a trope in fairy stories. Oftentimes, when people enter into or depart from fairy, they, they enter this, this deep enchanted sleep. Oftentimes, years will pass. Oftentimes, you know, seasons will, will blur around the person who is sleeping, and they will wake only to discover that they are displaced in time from whence they were. 
But the removal of memory is a curious and specific and unsettling element. I'm really not sure what to make of that, but it speaks intuitively, I think, to me at least, of the corruption of Mirkwood. So we have to understand that Mirkwood is a... I was going to say uh, a place at war. That's not entirely true, of course, because the corruption is that much more insidious. There isn't an open line of battle, even with the spiders. Had the dwarves and Bilbo stayed on the path, well, as we discover in tonight's reading, of course, had they stayed on the path, things would have turned disastrously. But at the time, we were led to believe that had they stayed on the path, they could have endured. They could have passed through this realm of fairy, this realm of, of wild fairy, almost, without incident. The spiders attack when they leave the path. That may be a relic of older enchantment. It may be a relic of the nature of the place. It may be proof of, of Mirkwood's wild fairy characteristic, that it occupies this space between the wild, as we discussed after crossing the Misty Mountains, and the realm of fairy that is truly the domain of the elf king and his people. So when we're talking about the uneasy coexistence of the elves and the spiders, and I should say the presumed uneasy coexistence of the elves and the spiders, I think that we have to acknowledge the nature of the place. We have to look at the domains of the elf king's realm, and we have to look at the nature of Mirkwood itself. And your mileage may vary. Your interpretation may, may be somewhat different from my own. Yes. Um, I have lost the the YouTube chat has scrolled on without me, so I, I now have to fight and catch up. Yes. Lauren says, had they stayed on the path, they would have been safe from the forest. Yes. Yes. And Mariana says, Tolkien was so good at making the landscape a character. Mariana, that is a beautiful observation. Uh, many of you will, will know, I'm sure, that Tolkien was also uh, an enthusiastic painter of landscapes. So his understanding of geography in the broadest sense, his understanding of setting is is nigh peerless. I can't think of a contemporary, and by contemporary, I mean kind of quasi-modern, I mean 20th century writer, who had that same mastery of the, the depth and the sweep and the grandeur of landscape. I think that you have to, Thomas Hardy, maybe? Thomas Hardy had, had a similar sense, it seems to me, of, of the grandeur of the natural world and its its symbolism, its import, the metaphor that underlies our coexistence with that natural world, our existence within that natural world, Tolkien manages to communicate that that beautifully, always. Yeah. Robert says, I'm pretty convinced the elves are simply living their lives, hunting, eating, probably creating something, trading with man, eating, drinking, that kind of stuff. It certainly seems to be the case. It doesn't, there's no hint within the text that the, the realm of the elf king is in any way besieged. But as I said, that's not how the corruption in Mirkwood spreads. That's not how this malign influence infiltrates. It is corruptive. It is deceptive. It is intrusive. But there isn't a front line. I don't expect there to be a barricade between the Elf King's Hall and the spiders of the forest, where a line of elves stand day and night with sputtering torches just waiting for the spiders to attack. That doesn't feel true to me. That doesn't feel right to me. Because, of course, the border between even Mirkwood and the Elf King's realm is intangible. It is a threshold of magical proportions. I mean, it is a true point of transit between one world and another world. I don't know, I doubt strongly, in fact, whether the spiders would ever come near the Elf King's realm. In the same way, I suspect, as they would avoid the path. But this does lead us to, and this too has been a talking point over the course of the last week, I wonder to what degree the path is protected by elven enchantments specifically, 
or magic of a gentler kind, magic of an older kind, or, as we discussed last time, simply the presence of civilization, the civilizing force. You make a road, and that goes some way toward standing against the incursion of the wild. We could talk about this for hours. Yes, yes. Good. Danny asks, why do you think that the necromancer has not corrupted the elves like he has everything else in Mirkwood? Well, that's interesting. In part, I would say that's extra textual. In part, I would say that's because elves are less prone to the corruption of, let's call him the necromancer, than the other races are. And those corruptions are generally more evident. But one might actually make the case that part of this reclusive property that the elves display here, that the elf king in particular displays here, can be attributed to to the corruption of Mirkwood. I don't think that's the more interesting reading. I think that the more interesting reading comes from the Elf King's love of gold and jewels, which we'll get to in due course. Yes. Um, good. I really should actually push on here, but I'm noting some comments about Thomas Hardy. Fina says, Thomas Hardy, oh, it's scrolling again. Thomas Hardy creates such dense and beautiful scenery. It regularly makes me dizzy trying to imagine it. Yes, that's beautifully put. That is exactly the experience of reading Hardy. Yes, I do adore, adore Hardy. Um, there is a very good chance that within the next year, I'm going to do a uh, Far From the Madden Crowd seminar series because, I, well, I love that book. It's not my favorite Hardy. My favorite Hardy is the mayor of Casterbridge. And I would really dearly love to talk about that. But I feel as though many people haven't read Hardy at all. And those who have perhaps read him in high school and didn't have that full experience of, of entering into his secondary world. So I think perhaps Far From the Madding Crowd may be the best place to start. We'll talk about that hopefully later this year. Good. Um, Oh, Katie is saying that she still doesn't have access to the Discord server despite messaging Patreon. Katie, I can only apologize. If you email me, alistair at storywonk.com, I will kick the necessary boxes and see what I can turn up for you. I do apologize for that. Um, I don't have a great deal of influence, but I can at least encourage people. It's about as far as I can go. I can kick the uh, the Patreon page and see if I can round something out of it. Good. Um, Yes, Gene says elves also seem more inclined to live and let live. If the spiders keep their distance, the elves have no reason to go after them. No, this again is hmm. this again i think is indicative of this conflict between good and evil between the west and the wild there's this idea that the wild exists on its own terms the eagles don't hunt the goblins they will spoil the goblins fun they will they will intrude upon the goblins when the opportunity presents itself but there isn't a war between the two bayorn on the other hand as as a synthesis of the West and the Wild, does embody that war. He is fighting a one-man war against the goblins, but is doing so for very personal reasons. He's not doing so for reasons of political, uh, political philosophy or for, for military strategy. He's fighting his fight. Here again, we see this question, what are the elves doing within the context of the corrupting Mirkwood? Yeah. Good. All right. Excellent. Um, Yes, and, and Mariana's calling out here, Tolkien was bitten by a large spider in South Africa as a small child. Apparently, I think it may have influenced him. Yes, this is one of the, the, the interesting recurring motifs in Tolkien's work, the presence of large spiders of evil. Yes, Tolkien also really didn't like cats, so make of that what you will. Good. All right, let's uh, push on. We haven't even hit our first slide yet, you guys. We've just been framing this discussion. Let's push into our first slide. I have many to get through tonight, so this is going to be a swift discussion, I'm sure. This is taken from the very beginning of Chapter 9. 
The day after the battle with the spiders, Bilbo and the dwarves made one last despairing effort to find a way out before they died of hunger and thirst. They got up and staggered on in the direction which eight out of the thirteen of them guessed to be the one in which the path lay, but they never found out if they were right. Such day as there ever was in the forest was fading once more into the blackness of night, when suddenly out sprang the light of many torches all around them, like hundreds of red stars, out leapt wood elves with their bows and spears, and called the dwarves to halt. There was no thought of a fight. Even if the dwarves had not been in such a state that they were actually glad to be captured, their small knives, the only weapons they had, would have been no use against the arrows of the elves that could hit a bird's eye in the dark. So they simply stopped dead and sat down and waited. All except Bilbo, who popped on his ring and slipped quickly to one side. That is why when the elves bound the dwarves in a long line, one behind the other, and counted them, they never found or counted the hobbit. Lauren is saying here in the YouTube chat, I love the specificity of eight out of 13. I adore that. I absolutely love that detail. It's, this is part of, I think, Bilbo's progression into a leadership role with the dwarves. As we've seen before, as we saw in the last chapter, in fact, Bilbo has now proved himself not just a worthy companion, but something of a hero. He is the one who battles the spiders. He is the one who defends the dwarves. And that's enormously significant. And as we'll see through chapter nine, the dwarves begin to turn to Bilbo. They begin to look to Bilbo for leadership. He isn't just a burglar at this point. He isn't even just one of the company. He is a part. And in Thorin's absence, he does seem to be taking something of a leadership role. We'll talk about that as we continue to move forward. Yeah. Good. Oh, Sabrina says, me too. It makes me wonder which eight. I have no idea. <laughs> what I really wanted to talk about, though, in this uh, excerpt is the presence of the elves. Let's look at the way in which the elves are introduced. So the dwarves are exhausted, starving, bloodied from the fight. They've lost their leader. It's unclear why it is that they're even pressing on, except for that desperate need to survive. And then, such day as there ever was in the forest was fading once more into the blackness of night. So we've got this, this the lambent glow that has made it down through the treetops above to illuminate the forest is now fading. And as we know from the last chapter, that leaves us in pitch darkness. That leaves us in a darkness absolute. But then, out sprang the light of many torches all round them like hundreds of red stars. Light. And even as they do so, they bring wonder. The lights spring to life all around them. And we might be reminded of the firelit feast that we observed last week in that nigh-perfect three-beat back in chapter eight. And one of the things that I don't think I, I properly hit, one of the things that I don't think I properly articulated during that is the wonder of the feast itself. Even as we are made to feel threatened by it, certainly uncomfortable about it, it is itself wondrous. There is light and food and music and laughter and all of these things are good and wholesome and in their way, civil things. But because of their context, because of the elves themselves, they are made otherworldly. They are made unsettling. And here, too, I think we get some sense of that. So the dwarves sit down. The dwarves surrender themselves for pretty good reason, I think. 
But here, Bilbo once again distinguishes himself from the rest of the company. Rather than simply submitting, and Bilbo, we can be absolutely sure, is every bit as hungry, every bit as exhausted, if not much more so than his dwarven companions. Instead of surrendering, Bilbo slips on the ring and steps to one side. We might be tempted to ask why that is particularly from the perspective of the Lord of the Rings. When we're talking about the ring's influence over its bearer, when we talk about the ring's presence of mind and the ring's ability to control its own destiny, one of the things in The Hobbit which may, which may draw our attention is this. It's this detail, this scene, where Bilbo takes action in a way that might be surprising. He eludes capture here, even though he is exhausted. And let's be clear, the dwarves, we're told, are almost grateful to be captured. They're almost willing to submit to their captors because it's better than walking in the dark. It's better than trying to fight their way through this forest. Bilbo, who is every bit as hungry, every bit as exhausted as the dwarves, does not submit. Now, on the one hand, we might attribute that to the influence on the, of the ring. On the other, we might attribute it to something far grander and yet in its own way more humble. Bilbo does not submit. Bilbo does not lose hope. Bilbo does not quit. And in this moment, when that comes into focus, we can look back at Bilbo's preceding adventures and look at those moments when perhaps any other soul would have despaired. But Bilbo doesn't despair. Bilbo takes action. And as we move through tonight's reading in particular, and through the, the last third of the book, pretty much, we're going to see the way in which that desire, that, that impulse, that natural inclination toward action serves Bilbo's luck. It serves his remarkable gift of luck. The luck is not in itself enough to save him. The luck inspires him, gives him an opportunity, gives him a chance, but then he takes it. Then he takes action. We'll continue to look at that. Yes. Bilbo has that old hobbit grit, says Mariana. Yes. Yes. And that's an interesting way of putting it because I do think that we might, we might associate Bilbo's steadfastness. We might associate Bilbo's indefatigability rather than with the, the somewhat more mercurial and romantic and impulsive Turkish side of his character with instead the Bagginsish side of his character. Old Bungo Baggins, I'm sure, never quit anything in his life. The Tooks, well, part of the aspect of adventure that, that, that appeals most, I think, is its transitory nature, that adventure will occur, that tomorrow will not be like today, this too shall pass. It doesn't require that same commitment, that same steadfastness as a much quieter, and obviously it's, it's foolish to even try and draw the comparison directly between adventure and mundanity. These two things are opposed for very good reasons, but I think that within their own bounds, one of those two lives requires more commitment, more, more indefatigability. This may be Bilbo's Bagginsish nature flourishing again, even in, in adversity. As Robert says, hobbits are the most remarkable creatures. Yes. Good. Good. Um, I think we're talking about the dwarves here. Um, Damn Dirty Gamer says, I think it's a reflection of the narrator. Bilbo really doesn't find distinction in the different dwarves, so doesn't reflect that in his narration. This is one of the very interesting evolutions of The Hobbit over the years, as, as Tolkien was writing and then revising this novel. Um, originally, the dwarves were much more 
dispersed. There would be odd lines of dialogue belonging to, to basically all of the dwarves. All of the dwarves but Thorin would have effectively the same number of lines through the course of the book. And as Tolkien returned to the manuscript and revised and revised and revised, he distilled down those, those moments of active characterization. So instead, we get a few dwarves who talk quite a lot, and then we get a bunch of dwarves who don't really say anything. Um, does Owen speak? in the course of the entire novel, apart from his introduction right at the beginning. I'm not sure that he does. So that, I think, is, is interesting. And certainly, I think there's an argument that uh, th this is a, a product of Bilbo's own perspective, certainly during the adventure, if not in the aftermath. Yeah. Um, good. Dylan says, it's not just action, though. Bilbo's successes all come from stepping aside for a moment, collecting his thoughts, and then acting. That's actually rather beautifully put, Dylan. I think you're entirely right. I think that, again, we see here not that Tookish impulse to action, but also the Baggins-ish inclination toward consideration. We take a beat, then we act. We take a beat, oftentimes we think of home, and then we act. That, I think, is a very, very astute observation. Yes. Good. And Catherine asks, is the disinclination to despair part of what makes hobbits capable of withstanding the influence of the ring? Catherine, that is a great question. Yes, I think so. I think in the sense that they are both products of a simple humility. I think that hobbits are not great. Hobbits are not grand. Hobbits do not build for themselves social structures which embody power. As we discussed all the way back in the very first chapter of The Hobbit, the hobbits themselves live simple, straightforward lives. And I think that those simple, straightforward lives give rise both to their resilience to the ring and to their, their relative steadfastness. And obviously, of course, those of you who have read The Lord of the Rings will know that we will have ample opportunity to talk about hobbit courage and hobbit steadfastness when we get to the end of The Return of the King. Yes, or halfway through The Return of the King. Right. Good. Okay, let's uh, push into our next slide here and our introduction to the Hall of the Elf King itself. Across the bridge, the elves thrust their prisoners, but Bilbo hesitated in the rear. He did not at all like the look of the cavern mouth, and he only made up his mind not to desert his friends just in time to scuttle over at the heels of the last elves before the great gates of the king closed behind them with a clang. Inside, the passages were lit with red torchlight, and the elf guards sang as they marched along the twisting, crossing, and echoing paths. These were not like those of the goblin cities. These were smaller, less deep underground, and filled with the cleaner air. In a great hall with pillars hewn out of the living stone sat the elven king on a chair of carven wood. On his head was a crown of berries and red leaves, for the autumn was come again. In the spring, he wore a crown of woodland flowers. In his hand he held a carven staff of oak. The prisoners were brought before him, and though he looked grimly at them, he told his men to unbind them, for they were ragged and weary. Besides, they need no ropes in here, said he. There is no escape from my magic doors for those who are once brought inside. This is another of these luminous and beguiling descriptions that Tolkien has given us here. The description of the Elven King's Hall, this chamber that is carved from stone and that is filled with wood and, and light and air. This is, 
as the narrator tells us explicitly, not like those of the goblin cities. This is not to bring to mind goblin town. And yet, it has to. It must. And I find it curious that the reference to goblin town comes right after we're told that the elf guards sang as they marched along the twisting, crossing, and echoing paths. Because we've had the dwarves be taken captive before. And when they were taken captive, their captors sang songs. That was where we got the goblin song. But this is different. This is elven. It's curious that these elves within the pages of The Hobbit are referred to as wood elves specifically, as to distinguish them from the high elves of Rivendell. The wood elves live in this harmony with nature. The elf king is connected with the world around him, even here in his, what we might somewhat less than charitably call a cave. Here he is beneath the earth, but not so very far beneath the earth. And unlike the goblins who create these twisted, industrialized weapons of destruction, instead, he sits upon a carven wooden throne, holding a carven staff with berries and leaves upon his head as a sign of his authority and presumably a sign of his connection with his kingdom. We are being challenged here in our understanding. We are being challenged to see this as something that is not completely dissimilar to Goblin Town, but also is different in all of the most important ways. Yeah. Dry Heaving Lama says, surprise Tolkien didn't just call them Welves. I like that. Welves here, and well, I guess that would mean that the High Elves would be would be heels. I can take that. We can, we can make that work, sure. Damn Dirty Gamer says, I do very much enjoy the, the difference between the reception at the last homely house and Thranduil's Hells, Thranduil's Hall, excuse me, both elves, but distinct. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Good. And Sabrina's calling out a very subtle distinction here. Technically, Bilbo was not brought inside, so he can come and go. That is interesting, isn't it? I've always been struck by the Elf King referring to his, his, his magic doors. There is no escape from my magic doors for those who are once brought inside. That's actually fascinating. Thank you for calling that out, Sabrina. I like that a lot. Good. Yeah. Okay. Um, and Dark Elves, uh, as It Don't Connect says, Dark Elves would therefore be Delves, which works pretty nicely, yes. <laughs> um, Jackie says, they're still related to the Elves and Lorien. I must brush up on this. Trying to keep straight the various tribes of Elves, if you're drawing particularly from the Silmarillion, is a daunting task. I am still unable to keep all of the Elves completely straight, I must admit. Um, but it's something that we can definitely discuss as we get there. Yes. Good. Welves, wood elves. Yes. Good. <laughs> and thresholds. Yes. Down Dirty Gamer. Biohazard Princess says thresholds again. Hope you're absolutely right. Thresholds all over the place. Yes. Here we get, uh, we get these transits. Um, let's take a look. In fact, if I call the slide back up here so that you can see it here. Yes. And Danny's calling out the next point that I'm going to get to, too. Yes. Um, yes. Bilbo hesitated in the rear. He did not at all like the look of the cavern mouth. He only made up his mind not to desert his friends just in time to scuttle over the heels of the last elves before the great gates of the king closed behind them. So not only do we have this, the cavern mouth being a threshold, but we have the gates 
to. And then as we're passing through this, this enchanted place, as we're passing through the realm itself, the paths themselves are twisting and crossing and echoing threshold after threshold after threshold. Yes. Good. Great. Uh, Danny, though, calls out, Bilbo thought to desert his friends to the elves? Well, see, here's the thing. <laughs> Bilbo often wishes that he were back home. He wishes that he were back in his comfortable hobbit hole with the kettle just getting ready to boil and, and, and bacon, presumably, somewhere. But Bilbo is defined not by his impulses, but by his actions. We are all, I think, defined not by our impulses, but by our actions. And I don't know to what degree Bilbo is serious about that. I think a moment of hesitation as he stands here on the literal threshold of fairy is understandable. But he still screws his courage to the sticking place and pushes onward. And that's part of what makes Bilbo so completely admirable. Were he a hero, he may not hesitate. Were he a great champion, as we were discussing back in the very first chapter, he would he would presumably mount some kind of daring sword-swinging rescue attempt. But no, he is still Bilbo Baggins. He is still both Took and Baggins. And the rescue that he effects ultimately speaks to both halves of his nature. And as we've discussed, Bilbo is never more powerful than when those two halves of his nature are working in concert, when they are combined and unified within himself. Good. All right. Let's... Uh, Let's keep going because Bilbo is going to spend quite a bit of time here in the Hall of the Elf King, and it's going to wear a little thin. I'm like a burglar that can't get away, but must go on miserably bur burgling the same house day after day, he thought. This is the dreariest and dullest part of this whole wretched, tiresome, uncomfortable adventure. I wish I was back in my hobbit hole by my warm fireside with the lamp shining. He often wished, too, that he could get a message for help sent to the wizard, but that, of course, was quite impossible. And he soon realized that if anything was to be done, it would have to be done by Mr. Baggins, alone and unaided. Eventually, after a week or two of this sneaking sort of life, by watching and following the guards and taking what chances he could, he managed to find out where each dwarf was kept. He found all their twelve cells in different parts of the palace, and after a time he got to know his way about very well. What was his surprise one day to overhear some of the guards excuse me, to overhear some of the guards talking and to learn that there was another dwarf in prison too, in a specially deep, dark place. He guessed at once, of course, that this was Thorin, and after a while he found that his guess was right. At least after many difficulties, he managed to find the place where no one was about and to have a word with the chief of the dwarves. Here we find another moment of unity for Bilbo. Here, in the midst of the realm of fairy, in the midst of an utterly horrifying adventure, uh, an adventure, a challenge which would presumably have left him shrieking on his mat back home, he finds the confidence, the security to become almost bored. It's tiresome, it's dreary, it's dull. This is Bilbo inhabiting his burglarious nature to such a degree that it too becomes wearing, and it's no longer an adventure. He's now taking part in this life. He is, he is demonstrating his skill, he is plying his trade, but he is not thrilled by it, not satisfied by it, not moved by it. It has become mundane, it has become boring. And when all 
wondrous things become boring. We know that we have entered a state of complacency, of unity, arguably, that we have become inured to wonder. And that's fascinating because that doesn't happen in fairy stories. And as much as this is a classic example of the realm of fairy, as we move through chapter nine, we begin to realize that it doesn't work like a fairy story at all, at all. Chapter eight is much more conventionally a fairy story than chapter nine. Because what we're doing as we establish the otherworldliness of the, of the elf king's realm is actually pulling back toward a much more mundane, much more comfortable, much more commonplace setting. As this chapter progresses, we begin to see that maybe this isn't so terribly different from Rivendell. Maybe this isn't terribly, so terribly different from the Shire. We're seeing a commonplace kind of existence. And Bilbo, too, lulled into this lonely, parasitic existence on the fringes of this community, begins to feel that, too. Yeah. As Dylan says, nobody wants to be invisible forever. Yes. <laughs> Yes, we're asking some questions. Um, Lauren says, I wonder why they would have cells all over the castle. You'd think that would be inconvenient. Yeah, I wonder to what degree there are actual cells here. Does the Elf King have need of a dungeon? I'm not sure why he would. I'm not sure when the last time a merry troop of dwarves crossed the, the threshold of his domain was. I'm not sure when the last time he had to hold prisoners was, because presumably they wouldn't take the spiders prisoners. Presumably if the goblins intruded this far into Mirkwood, they wouldn't take them prisoner either. What is the purpose of the cells? Are they actually cells or are they simply rooms that have been repurposed? Is, I don't know, Dory languishing in a supply closet? It's possible. Certainly that would explain why they had to be stashed away all over the place in this arcane cave system. Yeah. Yes. Um, I just saw a thing there and then it, yes, as Lauren said, they basically just put them all in supply closets. Yes, that, that's certainly my reading. Good. Uh, Katie says, they seem to be in an underground cavern system, so cells all over the place would make sense. That is true, but from our description of the Elf King's Hall itself, we know that it was hewn from the living rock. So this isn't necessarily just a natural cave formation. It's entirely possible that this has been, has been mined out to create a more conventional, arguably, more luxurious, more habitable space. Good. Um, Yes. Or as Lady Sorka says, maybe for the elves who got a bit too drunk to sleep it off. Yes. <laughs> Single rooms with en suites, says Kim Clark. I can totally believe that. Yes. Good. Let's, uh, let's keep going because I'm already halfway through my allotted the time, you guys, and I'm not anywhere near halfway through my slides. Let's push on here to the moment of rescue. This is the point at which Bilbo undertakes a tremendous adventure. He accomplishes something genuinely remarkable, and he accomplishes it crucially from a position of leadership, as we'll see in this excerpt. Now come with me, he said, and take, oh, excuse me, I'm, I'm skipping ahead here. This is not, in fact, the, the passage that I have. This is the passage with Galleon the butler and the captain of the guard. I do apologize. Um, I misread that first part and assumed that it was Bilbo talking. I forgot that I had pulled this slide. This is, yes, of course, Galleon the butler. Galleon, interestingly, the one elf who is named 
in this wood elf realm. We don't even get the elf king's name in this passage. Instead, we just get Galleon the butler. Yes. Now come with me, he said, and taste the new wine that has just come in. I shall be hard at work tonight clearing the cellars of the empty wood, so let us have a drink first to help the labor. Very good, laughed the chief of the guards. I'll taste it with you and see if it's fit for the king's table. There's a feast tonight and it would not do to send up poor stuff. When he heard this, Bilbo was all in a flutter, for he saw that luck was with him and he had a chance at once to try his desperate plan. He followed the two elves until they entered a small cellar and sat down at a table on which two large flagons were set. Soon they began to drink and laugh merrily. Luck of an unusual kind was with Bilbo then. It must be potent wine to make a wood elf drowsy, but this wine, it would seem, was the heavy vintage of the great gardens of Derwinian, not meant for his soldiers or his servants, but for the king's feasts only, and for smaller bowls, not the butler's great flagons. As Dana calls out here in the chat, luck of an unusual kind. Luck so unusual that we call it out twice in two paragraphs. Bilbo saw that luck was with him and he had a chance at once to try his desperate plan and then luck of an unusual kind is with Bilbo. This is an astonishing contrivance. This is an astonishing confluence of luck, yes, and action. Bilbo now has an opportunity and he takes it. This passage, though, is, I think, one of those moments which tends to throw people out of The Hobbit. The thought of, firstly, an elvish butler, that sits oddly, I think, with our understanding of elves from The Lord of the Rings, but the idea of an elvish butler sitting down to drink with the captain of the guard and becoming immediately so intoxicated that they pass out. That challenges our understanding, I think, of elves and elvish culture. But I would argue that it is completely deliberate here, that it is purposeful in its intent, that what we're doing is restoring this measure of normalcy, of regularity, of commonplace life. We have become so accustomed now to fairy that we can allow for these elves to simply get sloshed together on the great wine of Derwinian, fit for the king's table and small cups, not for the great flagon set on the butler's table. This is, I would argue, probably not a great instance of eucatastrophe unless we blur together the entire capture of the elves. It is simply Bilbo's luck. This is an application of, of one of his most treasured possessions. Yes. Elvish butlers, says Dry Heaving Llamas, are all named Alfrond. Pretty good. Pretty good. And Damn Dirty Gamer says, love the Cinder and call out Darwinian. Yes, I love it. It stands out. It really does in this. Good. <laughs> yes, as Chesley says, the elves seem very majestic. I don't see them as butlers. Butlers seem to be more humble. And Robert says he could have meant Chamberlain, I suppose. But Tolkien always means what he says. That's what struck me too. This may arguably be one of those moments in which a concession is simply made for a juvenile audience that butler is a more immediately evocative word for an early 20th century child than chamberlain or steward or some more formal, more feudalistic, more medieval term. And it certainly serves the idea that we are pushing toward a sense of the Elf King's realm, of the Elf King's hall as simply a, a home, a, a place, a, a setting that is predictable, that is conventional, that is oddly domestic. Yeah. 
Good. All right. Oh, and Hero of Time 223 says, could Butler just be Bilbo's understanding of his position? I feel like Thranduil would use a fancier term like Seneschal. It's entirely possible, of course, because, well, mm, Bilbo's understanding of, of elf culture at this point would be minimal. Hmm. Yes, it is entirely possible. It is entirely possible. It may too be the case that he has uh, his his role, his 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 occupation, his purpose has some name in Sindarin, has some name in in one of the Elvish tongues, and that Bilbo is simply applying this as a label in the absence of another label. And that that could well be the case. Yes. Good. Yeah, as Jay Oliveira says, their mead slash beer slash wine for sure are stronger than any other in Middle Earth. Yes. And Lauren says, would it really be minimal? I guess referring to my, my statement that Bilbo's understanding of Elvish culture would be minimal. Um, certainly my, my perception here is that Bilbo is existing on the fringes of this, this, this community, that he's not perhaps, he isn't integrated into it, even as he's moving through it, that this is a burglar's role. This is almost a parasitic role. I think that his... It's certainly possible that he has a greater understanding than I'm giving him credit with. That's that's certainly the case. But yes, I, my understanding would be, I guess, that Bilbo is a little more removed from from Elvish culture, even by the end of his experience here, than he would otherwise be. Good. Yeah. And Jackie says, "I'm wondering how long Bilbo's been there, and if it's difficult to keep track of time in Mirkwood." Yes. Um, they were only in Mirkwood for a few days, I guess. Uh, it's kind of difficult to track that exactly um, because we were switching POV. And of course, the magic of fairy may alter the flow of time in some interesting fashion. Um, but yes, we know for sure that Bilbo has been in the Hall of the Elf King for, for weeks, yes. Which is when we were looking ahead to the adaptation of The Hobbit into the into the trilogy. Um, this was one of the, the, the chapters which intrigued me the most in terms of its potential adaptation because obviously the ring has taken on a presence because of the lord of the rings trilogy so it was clear that when bilbo was wearing his magic invisibility ring we would have to do the ring effect we would have to have bilbo enter into this ghostly and desaturated realm we would have to see those shots from his pov and living in that realm for weeks would have been difficult it would have been difficult to communicate that i think um Ultimately, we didn't do that. Of course, Peter Jackson's movies take place in a vastly compressed time frame, and time itself has an odd meaning and an odd pace in those movies. Yeah. Yes, good. Okay. Um, yes, the Ocean Palace asks, aren't they going to notice things are disappearing? Presumably, but Bilbo is a deft burglar. We can only assume that he is skilled enough that the food that he takes, that the, the sustenance that he takes from, from the whole of the Elf King is somehow overlooked. Yeah. Right. Good. Okay. Let's, um, let's move on then to our, our jailbreak. Let's move on to Bilbo rescuing the dwarves. This is the actual scene where he does so. Upon my word, said Thorin, when Bilbo whispered him to come out and join his friends. Gandalf spoke true, as usual. A pretty fine burglar you make, it seems, when the time comes. I'm sure we are all forever at your service, whatever happens after this. But what comes next? Bilbo saw that the time had come to explain his idea as far as he could, but he did not feel at all sure how the dwarves would take it. His fears were quite justified, for they did not like it a bit, and started grumbling loudly in spite of their danger. 
We shall be bruised and battered to pieces and drowned too for certain, they muttered. We thought you'd got some sensible notion when you managed to get hold of the keys. This is a mad idea. Very well, said Bilbo, very downcast, but also rather annoyed. Come along back to your nice cells, and I will lock you all in again, and you can sit there comfortably and think of a better plan. But I don't suppose I shall ever get hold of the keys again, even if I feel inclined to try. Bilbo here, in his leadership role, is just fantastic. I completely adore it. When Thorin hands authority over the situation to Bilbo, right there at the end of that first paragraph, that is an enormous concession. And I wonder, as Thorin says, I'm sure we are all forever at your service, whatever happens after this, but what comes next, if that is as close as we will get to a Thorin Oakenshield at your service. This formal reintroduction, which we have seen now twice. We saw it once specifically in the wake of the Misty Mountains adventure, and then we are told again that the dwarves try to reintroduce themselves in Mirkwood. So we get a sense here that Bilbo is winning over the party, step by step by step. As Kate says on Twitter, Bilbo to the, dwar Bilbo to the dwarves, take it or leave it, punks. There is a stark lack of gratitude here. Oh, and as Kim calls out, perhaps you'd like it better back in your cell, your worshipness. Nice crossover. I like that a lot. <laughs> so we have Bilbo taking the lead, even at, at Thorin's insistence. He explains his idea. The dwarves resist. The dwarves push back against the idea and criticize Bilbo for it. But then he asserts himself. Then he really does take charge. Because it's one thing to be a leader by default, I suppose. It is one thing to be cast into a leadership position, but it's quite another to actively take charge, which is what Bilbo does at the end of that section. And we'll continue to do as we move out of the elf realm. <laughs> and now we're quoting appropriate Star Wars quotes here in the YouTube chat. This is pretty great. Good. Good. As Jay Oliveira says, we will all be at your service whatever happens after this. This is pretty telling. So is this the moment that Bilbo becomes a real burglar for the dwarves? Certainly this, this is the moment where Bilbo becomes a real burglar for Thorin. Yes. I think some of the other dwarves have come around. We don't know exactly which dwarves pledged their service and bowed back to him in Mirkwood. But this feels to me as though this is a recognition from Thorin. And of course, a recognition from someone in a position of natural authority is worth more. Thorin is simply the greatest of these dwarves by virtue of his position, by virtue of his rank. Yes. Excellent. And Hero of Time says, I love how being downcast results in extreme confidence. It shows that hobbits are truly made of sterner stuff when the pressure is on. Yes, I think that's a great observation that absolutely echoes back to our previous discussion about Bilbo's, about Bilbo's steadfastness, about his, his courage, about his refusal ever, ever, ever to give up. Yeah. <laughs> Chesley says, Bilbo entering Markwood. I've got a bad feeling about this. Good. <laughs> oh, and Eowyn says, I love you. And Aragorn says, I know. How adorable. Good. Okay. Um, <laughs> Lord of the Rings with Harrison Ford quotes, I need this, says it don't connect. I think we all need this. There definitely needs to be a... Uh, there definitely needs to be, at the very least, a Tumblr, I think. Someone out there can, can go start that Tumblr page, and, uh, and I'll share the link on Twitter. Yes, good. Bilbo as R2-D2, says Kim Clark. Oh, Bilbo as R2-D2 and C-3PO. 
I think that's, that's pretty much the only way of making that work, right? I mean, we have to have that that combination. We have Gandalf as Obi-Wan Kenobi. That definitely works. Hmm. Yeah, the, the casting is not easy for the Hobbit, but certainly by the time we get to uh, by the time we get to the Lord of the Rings, we may be able to have some interesting discussions about the Fellowship versus the standing cast of uh, of uh, of uh, Star Wars. Yes, good. Okay, Sam as R two D two says Robert Haycock emphatically. Yes, certainly in, in the Lord of the Rings. Right, the Ring is the Death Star. <laughs> Yes. Okay. This is a rabbit hole that I am now closing down. I will get a friendly giant to block up this rabbit hole so that we can't spend the next hour just talking about a Star Wars Lord of the Rings crossover as much as <laughs> the Ocean Palace says, beep boop, said Bilbo. That's the last one. That's the last one I'm reading, I swear. Because we have to talk about a song, we have to talk about an elf song. This is the song that is sung by the elf rafters as they send the barrels off down the river. Down the swift dark stream you go, back to lands you once did know. Leave the halls and caverns deep, leave the northern mountains steep, where the forest, wide and dim, stoops in shadow, gray and grim. Float beyond the world of trees, out into the whispering breeze, past the rushes, past the reeds, past the marshes, waving weeds, through the mist that riseth white, up from mere and pool at night. Down the swift dark stream you go, back to lands you you once did not. I'm just now realizing that what I have done, in fact, is copy the same half of this twice. Okay, here's what we're going to do, because I happen to have my book right here. <laughs> I made a terrible mistake while copying, the, while preparing this slide. Here we go. I have my copy of The Hobbit right here. This is where I uh, pulled it from anyway, so I have it here. Okay, so from Up From Mirror and Pool at Night, forgive me, this is a terrible oversight. Um, Follow, follow, stars that leap up the heavens cold and steep. Turn when dawn comes over land, over rapid, over sand. South away and south away. Seek the sunlight and the day. Back to pasture, back to mead, where the kine and oxen feed. Back to gardens on the hills, where the berry swells and fills. Under sunlight, under day, south away and south away. Down the swift dark stream you go. Back to lands you once did know. Those of you who watch live may not know this, but in the podcast feed, I include a link to the slides that I've used so that you can peruse them at your leisure. I will fix the slide before I upload these, uh, before I upload the slides for this week's class. That was, uh, yes, I do apologize for that. Okay, so what are we making of this poem? Well, the first thing that stands out, I guess, is its relative simplicity. It echoes certainly the elf songs that we've seen before, but it is less cultured. There is no tra-la-la-lolly here. There is no, no ornate arrangement. There is nothing baroque about this poem, about this song. It is instead much simpler and even somewhat reminiscent of the Goblin song. And I didn't pull it for a slide, but since I actually have it here in the book in front of me, let me read the previous poem. It's a very short little stanza that we get. Roll, 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 rolling down the hole, heave, ho, splash, plump, down they go, down they bump. This is the first song that is sung as the as the barrels are being dropped into the water. And that is particularly reminiscent of the Down Down to Goblin Town song. It uses single-syllable words. It uses onomatopoeia. It uses that, that present tense sense of action being lived and relived. 
even in the songs, I think Tolkien manages to synthesize the elves of the West that we met in Rivendell and the songs of the wild that we have seen represented through the goblins. But more importantly, there is something else happening within the bounds of this poem. The elves are singing, of course, to the barrels, but if they knew that these barrels were stuffed with dwarves, their words could not be more apposite. They could not be more appropriate for the dwarves' experience. Down the swift dark stream you go, back to lands you once did know. Leave the halls and caverns deep, leave the northern mountains steep, where the forest wide and dim stoops in shadow, gray and grim. And if the dwarves can hear that from inside the barrels, they're thinking, yes, exactly, let's do this thing. Let's go back to lands we once did know. That would be fantastic. Let's leave behind the forest wide and dim. Let's float out beyond the world of trees, out into the whispering breeze, past the rushes and past the weeds, uh, past the reeds, excuse me, past the marshes waving weeds. Yes, let's do that thing. That would be great. But of course, the elves don't know that the dwarves are in there. So the song, while it has applicability in that regard, also has to be more commonplace for these elves. They're sending the barrels back down the river. They're sending them back to Lake Town, in fact, and that is powerful, I think. There is a recognition of, of some kind of cyclical relationship here, that the barrels come, though exactly how the barrels come, we don't quite know. There must presumably be a road from Lake Town back to the Elf King's realm. The barrels of, of wine and of apples and of whatever else is ferried up to the Elf King must arrive there somehow. The barrels returning by river makes a lot of sense, but how we get the barrels to the Elf King in the first place remains somewhat unclear. Certainly, it seems as though they can't be ferried back upstream, though possibly, possibly that may be true. Let's um, look as well at the detail of, of the passage here, because there are elements here that almost speak to the dwarves' uh, wind song. Remember the wind coming howling out of the west? Um, where is the... Um, yes. As, as you'll remember, the wind uh, passes from the west. It crosses the mountains. It, it scours the wood. It, it crosses the marshland beyond. It reaches the mountain, and then, much to our surprise it ascends, it transcends, it, it moves upward into the celestial realm, into the realm of, well, the divine. Here we get a similar echo of that. Follow, follow stars that leap up the heavens cold and steep, turn when dawn comes over land, over rapid, over sand, south away and south away, and seek the sunlight and the day. That speaks to me, at least, of that same impulse to combine the, the natural order of things. Because, of course, while the barrels themselves are moving and the barrels themselves are, are, are the object of the song, the river itself is what is doing the work here. The river itself is what is taking the action. The barrels are being acted upon rather than taking action themselves, much in the same way as the wind moved through the world and then ascended. It seems to me that we're seeing a similar echo here for the river itself. But then most interestingly, we arrive at a very different and very familiar sense of, sense of domesticity, sense of comfort even, Back to pasture, 
back to mead, where the kine and oxen feed, back to gardens on the hills, where the berry swells and fills, under sunlight, under day, south away and south away. This restoration to prosperity, this restoration to comfort and to familiarity, to the swelling berry, this speaks powerfully of a difficult journey. And of course, if the passage out beyond the lands of the elf king speak to the dwarves' personal experience, that return speaks to Bilbo's. This is one of the more subtle moments in the book, when we are reminded that Bilbo's journey is a there-and-back-again journey, that he is traveling from the hill to the mountain and will return ultimately to the hill. He will ultimately return to his hobbit hole, as the barrels will return to peaceful prosperity. Yeah. Um, Robert Haycock says, I wrote a term paper in high school on Tolkien. The teacher hated Tolkien and promised me no more than a B on whatever I submitted. I got an A. Robert, you're doing the thing. You did the work. Good job. Yeah. Good. Shane says the elves are looking directionally to what is around them because they do not face west because they have not been to the west. They look south because that is what they know. That's a beautiful observation, Shane. I like that a lot. Yes. As we discussed last time, these are the elves who have not traveled into the West, who have not traveled to Valinor. That's not the way that it's presented here. They have not traveled to the realm of fairy in the West. Fairy upon fairy, I guess, uh, within the bands of Tolkien. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Um, yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. As Lauren says, I find it really interesting they drop the barrels down, but then later there are elves who tend them at the mouth. How do they travel? Do they just hang out on the shore of the lake? That does suggest a more frequent passage between the Elf King's realm and Lake Town, doesn't it? There must be some kind of thriving commerce here. It's unclear how many elves there are in the Elf King's domain, in, in the woodland domain. It's unclear how many men there are in Lake Town. But yes, and, and I'm grateful to you too, Lauren, for, for calling out the fact that there are elves who retrieve the barrels at the end of the river, because that can be a little complicated. The raftmen are definitely elves. That is why they refer to our king when they're referring to the elf king later in the, uh, later in the next passage, uh, in the next chapter, I should say. Yes, good. The Ocean Palace says elves have a song or poem for everything, don't they? Absolutely do. Yes, good. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Um, yes. Okay. Let's, um, let's keep moving onward. I really must fix that slide. I must remember to fix that slide. If someone can tweet at me after the live session is over and remind me to fix that slide before I upload them, I'd be very grateful. Let's, uh, let's push on to another of these odd narrative intrusions. We talked last time about the way in which the narrator actually frames the end of the chapter, drawing attention to the fact that it is the end of the chapter and the, the sense in which that is a, a deliberately alienating device, that we are forced to recall the fact that we are reading a book at this point. I should observe too that we have not yet finished chapter nine and it is 10 after nine here in Central Time. We're definitely running late, you guys. We're definitely running late. Here, though, we see another intrusion from the narrator, but this time it's of a very different sort. This is as Bilbo is traveling down the river in pursuit of the dwarves. There is no need to tell you much of his adventures that night, for now we are drawing near the end of the eastward journey and coming to the last and greatest adventure, 
so we must hurry on. Of course, helped by his magic ring, he got on very well at first, but he was given away in the end by his wet footste footsteps excuse me, and the trail of drippings that he left wherever he went or sat. And also he began to snivel, and wherever he tried to hide, he was found out by the terrific explosions of his suppressed sneezes. Very soon there was a fine commotion in the village by the riverside, but Bilbo escaped into the woods, carrying a loaf and a leather bottle of wine and a pie that did not belong to him. The rest of the night he had to pass wet as he was and far from a fire, but the bottle helped him to do that, and he actually dozed a little on some dry leaves, even though the year was getting late and the air was chilly. I love, I love and adore that one particular sentence. But Bilbo escaped into the woods carrying a loaf and a leather bottle of wine and a pie that did not belong to him. May we all be blessed from time to time with pie that does not belong to us. <laughs> So, on the one hand, this is odd because the narrator is, again, deliberately intruding. Well, Bilbo had an adventure, but we're not really going to tell you about that adventure because, hey, look, have you seen the time? We've got another greater adventure to get to, so let's skip over this. The narrator might as well say, hey, I'm going to run late. Let's push on. Instead, though, we get this very brief account of Bilbo's adventure, and it is cast in absolutely mundane terms. Bilbo is sniffling, he is sneezing, he is miserable in a completely conventional and expected way. This is exactly the kind of discomfort that has beset and bedeviled Bilbo throughout his adventure, though it's also the kind of discomfort that he foresaw back in his home. But even here, we're seeing a different perspective on Bilbo. He doesn't hesitate to steal food. And this is not from the realm of the Elf King where he has been imprisoned or where at least I suppose his friends have been imprisoned. This is from the village by the river. This is a new step forward for Bilbo. This is a new kind of burglary for Bilbo. And it's very effective. He steals these things, he repairs to the woods, he warms himself with the wine and he even manages to sleep. He is, again, resourceful. He is, again, undaunted. Even in the face of adversity and misery, very personal, quiet, awful kinds of misery, he pushes forward. That's our Bilbo. Yeah. Hope says, I'm really invested in the burglar versus grocer concept I babbled about on Discord because it seems Took versus Baggins, but Bilbo is clearly both and burglar. Yes, I think that... that we might well argue that that the grocer represents the bag inside. Certainly we would recall there in the first chapter when Bilbo puts on his most businesslike manner, all the talk of, of contracts and negotiations, that does seem very grocer-like. And yet the Turkish side is the burglar. The Turkish side is the adventurer. Again, Bilbo remains both. Yeah. And again, Jackie says, Bilbo has got it so much better than the dwarves. He does, yeah. He's kind of, uh, kind of lucked out there. Good. To-do list 411. <laughs> To-do list 411 says, pie is amazing, especially when stolen from elves that are jerks. Couldn't agree more. Stolen elf pie is the best. Chesley says, bye-bye, someone else's pie. Pilbo took it to the river and ate it with wine. There is, there is something something roguishly romantic about this. I really rather love it. And I, I think it is that sense of, of adventure and of 
Bilbo no longer conforming to expectation, no longer conforming to rules. I mean, he is desperate and hungry, but he's probably not at this point starving as he was back in Markwood. And he presumably wouldn't need to take the loaf and the leather bottle of wine and the pie that did not belong to him. I love it. Good. Good. Okay. We should note, too, the reference there that uh, that the weather is turning colder, that it is getting chilly, because we are moving onward toward the end of the year. That is going to be significant uh, in next week's reading, in fact. Okay. Um, here we get our first, uh, our first, here we get our, our major transition for tonight's reading. Let me, um, let me screen share this and, yes, good. And take a brief drink here. <laughs> because I don't have stolen elf pie, I have to make do. Good. So this is the very beginning of... Um... <laughs> Hope says, Alistair, make a bye-bye elven pie song and the style of Douchebag Slayer, please. Um, for those of you who didn't listen to my Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast, Dusted, uh, I once wrote a song about Buffy's terrible taste in that. I did that thing. Uh, Bye Bye Elven Pie, of course, would match the tune of American Pie. I think we can probably make that happen between us. We can probably write some uh, some weird Al Yankovic-style uh, parody lyrics to that. Yes. Um, so this is our transition into um, chapter 10 of... of... <laughs> I'm now very distracted. You're all being very cute about pie. And over on Twitter, Gene is sharing uh, animated GIFs from um, from Pushing Daisies. We're in, of course, Lee Pace, who plays Thrandwill in the Hobbit adaptation, also plays a pie maker. You guys, it's all coming together. It's all connected. I'm starting to think that Pushing Daisies is Tolkien fan fiction. Let's keep moving because we really have to discuss the first reading here from chapter 10. This is our threshold. This is the point of inflection between the realm of fairy, between the wood and the lake beyond. It's between wood and water. The day grew lighter and warmer as they floated along. After a while, the river rounded a steep shoulder of land that came down upon their left. Under its rocky feet, like an in under its rocky feet, excuse me, like an inland cliff, the deepest stream had flowed, lapping and bubbling. Suddenly the cliff fell away. The shores sank. The trees ended. Then Bilbo saw a sight. The lands opened wide about him, filled with the waters of the river, which broke up and wandered in a hundred winding courses, or halted in marshes and pools, dotted with isles on every side. But still a strong water flowed on steadily through the midst. And far away its dark head, excuse me, and far away its dark head in a torn cloud, there loomed the mountain. Its nearest neighbors to the northeast and the tumbled land that joined it to them could not be seen. All alone it rose and looked across the marshes to the forest, the lonely mountain. Bilbo had come far and through many adventures to see it, and now he did not like the look of it in the least. This is that point of transition that I've been looking forward to really since we crossed the Misty Mountains, because the wild itself has been contained. It has been bounded. We have pushed deeper and deeper into the wild, first with the eagles and then with Beorn and then with Mirkwood and then ultimately so deep into <laughs> so deep into the wild that it has become fairy itself. But now we are restored. And as we look out 
across the marshes, across the river running, we look out upon the lonely mountain and we have, in a sense, arrived. I chuckled in the middle there because Kate says on Twitter, clearly pushing daisies can't be Tolkien fanfic. There's too many women. Sick burn, Kate. Sick burn. Okay. So what do we make of the river running? What do we make of the lonely mountain? What do we make of this sudden revelation? This is, it can only be, another threshold. This can only be another point of, of transformation in Bilbo's journey, which the narrator calls out to us. Bilbo had come far and through many adventures to see it, and now he did not like the look of it in the least. The depiction of the mountain standing alone, separated from its neighbors to the northeast, its head shrouded in cloud, this has always been for me one of the most evocative and moving and breathtaking pieces of description that we get in the entire book. We talked earlier about what a great what a great painter of landscape Tolkien is, even in words, even in prose. Tolkien will paint a magnificent landscape. This is one of my absolute favorites. Yes. Hope asks, lonely because it's desolate now, lonely because the dwarves isolated themselves in their kingdom. Yes and yes, I would argue. I think a little of both there. It is also literally a lonely mountain. It does stand by itself. There is a, a line of mountains to the northeast, but the lonely mountain stands apart. It is a single peak or single accumulation of peaks, I guess, rising uh, from the flats. But you're right, I think, in both senses. Lonely that the dwarves retreated within it, and lonely now that Smaug has taken up residence and surrounded it with this desolation. It is lonely in multiple senses now. Yes. Good. Good. Death or Glory Toad has reminded me on Twitter to fix the slide. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Good, good. Yes, and Hero of Time puts this really rather beautifully. It's so abrupt how they're ripped out of the close, claustrophobic discomfort of the land of fairy and find themselves in the open, harsh terrain of their reality. That is beautifully put, because thematically, that is exactly what has happened. They have been... Claustrophobic, I think, is a really interesting, is a really interesting way of describing it. Yes, they have been surrounded. They have been encompassed. They have been, in a sense, almost comforted. Certainly in their cells, they were given food, they were given water. It wasn't a nightmarish existence, but it was imprisonment nonetheless. Then we manifest that still further by incarcerating the dwarves in barrels and sending them tumbling down the river. This is, as I've said before, otherworldly. It is fantastical. But there's nothing fantastical in this description, if you can get over the, the improbability of the Lonely Mountain itself. This is stark, and this is real, and this is true. It is painted in an entirely different palette, and this is what awaits us. Though not before, we spend some time looking back on our journey. This is, uh, we, we've hinted at this, we've talked a little about this, but this is really a beautiful encapsulation of the luck that Bilbo has experienced through his journey, the luck really that all the dwarves have experienced through their journey. Those lands had changed much since the days when dwarves dwelt in the mountain, days which most people now remembered only as a very shadowy tradition. They had changed even in recent years, and since the last news that Gandalf had had of them. Great floods and rains had swollen the waters that flowed east, 
there had been an earthquake or two, which some were inclined to attribute to the dragon, alluding to him chiefly with a curse and an ominous nod in the direction of the mountain. The marshes and bogs had spread wider and wider on either side. Paths had vanished, and many a rider and wanderer too if they had tried to find the lost ways across. The elf rode through the wood, which the dwarves had followed on the advice of Beorn, now came to a doubtful and little-used end at the eastern edge of the forest. Only the river offered any longer a safe way from the skirts of Mirkwood in the north to the mountain-shadowed plains beyond, and the river was guarded by the wood elves' king. So you see, Bilbo had come in the end by the only road that was any good. It might have been some comfort to Mr. Baggins shivering on the barrels if he had known that, that news of this had reached Gandalf far away and given him great anxiety, and that he was, in fact, finishing his other business, which does not come into this tale, and getting ready to come in search of Thorin's company. But Bilbo did not know it. There's so much to love in this excerpt. Um, we had a version of this prior to entering Mirkwood, of course, where Beorn hinted that... It was fortune, that it was luck, that it was eucatastrophe that guided Bilbo and company to the only path that remained open. Oh, I should say, too, I should call out this reference, because this is oftentimes held up as, as proof of the magic that, that they encountered in Mirkwood. It is described as an elf road in Mirkwood. And I do think that it is entirely possible to read that as the road of the elves making. That is to say, the road that the elves cut through Mirkwood that presumably carries with it some elvish enchantment. It is also possible that by elf road, we mean road to the elves. That's hmm, open to interpretation. There is more to unpick in Mirkwood, I think, than than in this. Yes, it don't connect. I believe that is the first reference to you catastrophe tonight. I hope that you will have some, some alcohol left, that you have some beverage at your elbow that you can enjoy. <laughs> Jackie says the elves made the road, the elves keep the road. I do think that's an absolutely valid interpretation. Yes. If it is an elf road, then it may have a greater enchantment laid upon it, a greater significance laid upon it than just a regular road. That would make a lot of sense within the bounds of Markwood, though we must ask why the isolationist elves would build this road. Were the elves always this way? Well, they are more dangerous and less wise, as we were told before. So I'm not sure really about whether the elves would have maintained this road themselves or whether they would have Hmm. Whether they would have simply taken advantage of a, of a road cut by, cut by some other civilization, by some other presence in that part of the world. And for that, we have to dig pretty far back into the Silmarillion, let me tell you. Much more importantly, though, we see here again a recapitulation of the idea that we encountered with Beorn. That luck has guided Bilbo to the only road that was any good. The narrator says it flat out. So you see, Bilbo had come, into the end, come in the end by the only road that was any good. Any other route through Mirkwood any other route through the wild, any other route across the misty mountains would have led to disaster. But somehow, Bilbo and his companions, through catastrophe, have found their way to Lake Town. It's pretty profound. We also get another of these narrative intrusions. We get another beat of narrative voice here where we get the acknowledgement that Gandalf had in fact heard of Mr. Baggins' adventures, though it's not at all clear by which mechanism Gandalf has heard of Bilbo's adventures. But nonetheless, Gandalf has heard of them. He's finishing up his business, and then he's going to show up, and it kind of feels like we're just foreshadowing his return later in the story here, which I don't hate. I don't hate that. Yes. Good. 
Um, yes. Lauren says the elves are all mysterious to everyone else, but they trade with Lake Town like normal people. Yes. <laughs> and Robert says, all the elves at the levee let the barrels roll by. I think we're working hard on that American Pie parody. Works for me. Good. Yes, yes. Excellent. Okay. Um, well, rather than take that slide down, we'll just push on to the next one, I think, because we're going to arrive at Lake Town now. We're going to see the, the return of a king, as I referenced in the title card for this week's session. In the title of this week's session, the return of a king. Thorin is returning to Lake Town. Thorin, now the rightful ruler of the Lost Kingdom of Erebor. It's not the most noble introduction to Lake Town, but we'll get to some, some higher language and some more emphatic proclamations of his royalty and his right in just a few pages' time. Who are you? What do you want? They shouted, leaping to their feet and groping for weapons. Thorin, son of Thrain, son of Thror, king under the mountain, said the dwarf in a loud voice, and he looked it in spite of his torn clothes and his draggled hood. The gold gleamed on his neck and waist. His eyes were dark and deep. I have come back. I wish to see the master of your town. Then there was tremendous excitement. Some of the more foolish ran out of the hut as if they expected the mountain to go golden in the night and all the waters of the lake turn yellow right away. The captain of the guard came forward. And who are these? He asked, pointing to Feely and Keely and Bilbo. The sons of my father's daughter, answered Thorin. Feely and Keely of the race of Durin and Mr. Baggins, who has traveled with us out of the west. If you come in peace, lay down your arms, said the captain. This is... Tremendous. I love seeing Thorin in this role. I love his return. I love his confidence. I love his, his natural authority. And it's all the more emphatic because he just surrendered this authority to Bilbo. Because back in the hall of the, the elf king, he was not king under the mountain. He was Thorin Oakenshield. It's a really powerful transition and and beautifully, beautifully written. Thorin being fancy, says Becca Eller here in the YouTube chat. Absolutely, yes. Hope says, I really want to like Thorin. Yeah, Thorin not always, Thorin not always an easy person to, to like, yes. And Lady Sorica says, sons of my father's daughter is an odd phrase when you could just say sons of my sister or my nephews. And I think that's entirely correct, Lady Sorica, except that sons of my father's daughter draws back their lineage, not to Thorin himself, but to their, you know, to their direct connection to the throne, to, to the royal line of Erebor. And that, I think, is, is both purposeful and powerful. I think that identifying feeling and killing, these are not my nephews. These are not my sister's kids. These are themselves the, the heirs to this line. And we should say, too, that Philly and Killy are next in line. Killy, excuse me, is next in line to, to the throne. But yes, good, good. Thorin is coming into himself, says Nikki. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and we're, we're certainly, I think, um, th there's a certain uh, hesitation here in the YouTube chat about liking Thorin and about being completely on board with this proclamation. And I think that that is intentional. I think that that is, is, is um, 
something of which we must be mindful, something of which we should be aware as we're moving through this, that, that Thorin is about to arc in an interesting way, and we are seeing the beginnings of it here in this chapter. Yeah, good. Um, we have another song which we must look at. This is an interesting song in that this is sung by the folk of Lake Town. And it's interesting in part because of the account that we get about the songs that are sung in Lake Town, that there are fragments of old songs are being sung again. And those who hear those fragments take them and compose new songs. And this, it would seem to me, is a new song. The king beneath the mountains, the king of carven stone, the lord of silver fountains shall come into his own. His crown shall be upholden, his harp shall be restrung, his halls shall echo golden to songs of your resung. The woods shall wave on mountains and grass beneath the sun. His wealth shall flow in fountains and the rivers golden run. The streams shall run in gladness, the lake shall shine and burn. All sorrow, fail, and sadness at the mountain king's return. There is a lot going on in this. There is a lot happening in this oddly prophetic poem. Of course, one line stands out above all others, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But I find it fascinating the way that this piece unfolds and it reminds me of exactly what i just said about, about these fragments of song being drawn out and then recomposed almost almost recapitulated within a new frame because it feels as though we have effectively four different songs happening here the first stanza i guess we can call it the first four lines the king beneath the mountains the king of carven stone the lord of silver fountains shall come into his own is this prophetic? Is this history? What is, what is happening here? What is the tone that is happening here? What is the, the intent of these lines? And we must remember, because of the conspicuous use of the word carven in the previous chapter, we must think of the king of carven stone. We just came from the elf king's halls. We just came from, from carven stone. We came from, from chambers hewed into the living rock. Here again, we're seeing an echo of that almost, but used in a very different sense. Then in what we might think of as the second stanza, we take a sharp turn into the passive voice. His crown shall be upholden, his harp shall be restrung, his halls shall echo golden to songs of your resung. Well, who is upholding his crown? Who is restringing his harp? Who is re-singing these songs of your? And the passive voice is, of course, incredibly powerful because we've encountered this kind of passive voice once before in songs about dwarves. If we go all the way back to the Misty Mountains Cold song, we talked about the destruction that Smaug wrought. When we talked about the ways in which Smaug was peripheral to that account, we saw the consequence of his action. We saw the passive voice. And now we get that again. The woods shall wave on mountains and grass beneath the sun. His wealth shall flow in fountains and the rivers golden run. And this is where we take our turn into prophecy. Because now we are foretelling what will happen. Which wouldn't necessarily be worth much, except for the conspicuous line. Except for the line which stands out, particularly if you have read this book before. The streams shall run in gladness. 
the lakes shall shine and burn. All sorrow, fail, and sadness at the mountain king's return. To parse that penultimate line there, all sorrow, fail, and sadness, all sorrow and sadness will fail. That, that, that misery will be dispensed with and joy will return. That is the, I guess, literal interpretive intent of the line, but it is certainly possible to read that in a different way. It is certainly possible, particularly on the heels of, of the conspicuous line. For those of you who haven't read ahead, the conspicuous line is the lake shall shine and burn. That is very precise, very ominous, even within the context of the song. I think that even if you haven't read ahead, even if you don't know what's coming, the lakes shall shine and burn. That's not good. That's metaphorically good, perhaps, if we're talking about the outpouring of, of wealth in the broadest sense, not simply gold, though it's represented, of course, as gold, but but wealth in, well, in many different senses. And we can certainly talk, too, right at the end of this book about the ways in which um, the ways in which wealth will flow forth from the gate of, of the kingdom of Erebor. But right now, it feels as though we're doing something with, with very different intent. Yes. It's a pernicious double entendre, says Dylan. Yes, I completely agree. Um, Dana says, interesting difference between Thorin and Aragorn. Thorin's kingdom is about wealth equals power. Aragorn is about nobility equals power. Well, hmm. in part, though I would say that Thorin is not lacking in nobility. Well, okay, what do we mean by, no, what do we mean by nobility? Do, are we talking about noble virtue or noble lineage? Thorin certainly has the latter in excess, and the former... Not so much. Um, yes, yes. There is certainly a sense to... Ah, by the time we move into the Lord of the Rings, we're very interested in kings and service, that a, a good king, a wise king, is a servant to his people, in a sense, is a father to his people, in a sense. And there's very little of that from Thorin, though... As we continue to explore Thorin's journey and mark his descent, we'll see how that works out. Yeah. Good. Yes. As Danielle says, there, that's even an odd metaphor for people living next door to an ominously unnamed dragon. The village pessimist slipped that line in there. I think that might be the case. Yes. Yes. Good. <laughs> yes. Hero of Time says, I feel like you get the sense of the strength of the stone and how dwarves try to emulate it, thinking it's strong, steady, but it also makes them feel brittle and cracked. They need to learn to bend. Beautifully put. Adaptability, not a great dwarven virtue, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Good. Yes, we should clarify, too, that uh, though the coming of Smaug is a relatively recent event from the perspective of Thorin and the other dwarves, it did happen 150 years ago. So as we're moving into Lake Town and we're meeting with skepticism, we're meeting with a certain uh, oblivious disregard for their position in the shadow of the mountain, I think we can be a little more understanding of that as we as we move forward. Yeah. Let's look at Bilbo's time then in Lake Town. <laughs> this is really quite lovely. 
Then, as he had said, the dwarves' good feelings toward the little hobbit grew stronger every day. There were no more groans or grumbles. They drank his health, and they patted him on the back, and they made a great fuss of him, which was just as well, for he was not feeling particularly cheerful. He had not forgotten the look of the mountain, nor the thought of the dragon, and he had besides a shocking cold. For three days he sneezed and coughed, and he could not go out, and even after that his speeches at banquets were limited to, Thank you very much. In the meanwhile, the wood elves had, had gone back up the forest river with their cargoes, and there was a great excitement in the king's palace. I have never heard what happened to the chief of the guards and the butler. Nothing, of course, was ever said about keys or barrels while the dwarves stayed in Lake Town, and Bilbo was careful never to become invisible. Still, I dare say, more was guessed than was known, though doubtless Mr. Baggins remained a bit of a mystery. In any case, the king knew now the dwarves' errand, or thought he did, and he said to himself, Very well. We'll see. No treasure will come back through Mockwood without my having something to say in the matter. But I expect they will all come to a bad end and serve them right. Again, we're dragging the perspective away from Bilbo's experience. We have him now anchored in this terribly Baggins-ish and, and prosy experience. Yes, we have this astonishingly... Um, yeah, astonishingly mundane experience here for Bilbo. He simply has a cold. It's pretty cute. But at the same time, we're dragging the narrative away from him and returning back upriver to the Elf King again. We're looking at this ominous foreshadowing of what is to come. And not even necessarily what is to come, but what may come, what may await us. Firstly... The Elf King will not allow them to return with treasure through Mirkwood, though it isn't clear at all where Thorin and company would go after this. It may be that he is specifically targeting Bilbo in this regard, if he is completely aware of Bilbo in this regard. But more importantly, he expects that they will all come to a bad end, and it will serve them right. As Dylan says here in the YouTube chat, so much foreshadowing in this chapter, it's almost as if things are about to go horribly, horribly wrong. Perhaps. Perhaps horribly, horribly wrong. Yes. <laughs> Hobbits would be polite to their worst enemy on their veritable deathbed, says Hero of Time 223. Couldn't agree more. Yes. Good. Good. Okay. I really must wrap up here. Um, let me cancel that slide there. Um, yes, we have one more slide, so we'll get to that. I think perhaps what we'll do next time is talk a little more about Lake Town because... While I was compiling the slides for tonight's session, I became aware that there, there are fragments of, of detail scattered throughout the chapter, that we get these little hints and suggestions of what Lake Town is and then what it will be when we take that necessary turn the week after next. Um, what happens to Lake Town, not just in the sense of, of the plot elements that, that befall Lake Town, but the transformation of Lake Town as we move into the very last part of the story is profound. Yeah, yeah. The men of Lake Town have long memories, says Death or Glory Toad. I love this. Not anywhere near forgetful as men today. Yes, of course. The respect that we show history is vital in the works of Tolkien. Yes. Good. Oh, Damn Dirty Gamer calls out, Aragorn learned the sadness and acceptance of lost glory from the elves. Thorin never learned that lesson. Yes, that's extremely good. That's extremely good. I like that a lot. We'll talk a little 
Yes, when we get to Rivendell in Fellowship, we will talk a little about uh, some of the extended materials surrounding uh, Aragorn's childhood and, and his experiences there. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, good. Um, let's take a look then at this last slide for tonight, which really sets the stage for next week's reading here. At the end of a fortnight, Thorin began to think of departure. While the enthusiasm still lasted in the town was the time to get help. It would not do to let everything cool down with delay. So he spoke to the master and his counselors and said that soon he and his company would go on towards the mountain. Then, for the first time, the master was surprised and a little frightened, and he wondered if Thorin was, after all, really a descendant of the old kings. He had never thought that the dwarves would actually dare to approach Smaug, but believed they were frauds who would sooner or later be discovered and be turned out. He was wrong. Thorin, of course, was really the grandson of the king under the mountain, and there is no knowing what a dwarf will not dare and do for revenge or the recovery of his own. But the master was not sorry at all to let them go. They were expensive to keep, and their arrival had turned things into a long holiday in which business was at a standstill. Let them go and bother Smaug and see how he welcomes them, he thought. Certainly, O Thorin, Thryan's son, Thor's son, was what he said. You must claim your own. The hour is at hand, spoken of old. What help we can offer shall be yours, and we trust to your gratitude when your kingdom is regained. So we see here the too brief memory of some man. We see here the consequence of ill attention to history, to circumstance, to stories. The master neither respects Thorin nor believes him and is fearful of what will come in the future. He doesn't understand the significance of this and thus casts doubt upon Thorin. Yes. Yes. Some of the names, as Chesley is saying here, oh, and Robert is quoting Child of the Kindly West. Yes, which was exactly the, uh, the quote to which I was referring. Yes. Uh, Chesley said, some of the names are so clever, like Mirkwood, Misty Mountains, Rivendell, and some are very straightforward, like Lake Town, Lonely Mountain. The majority of straightforward names are east of Mirkwood. I'm not at all sure that I would agree with that, Chesley. I think that, um, um, yeah, um, I mean, Underhill, Hobbiton, um, <laughs> even, even, I mean, Rivendell is a completely literal name. I mean, Rivendell is, it, it, it is a dell which has been riven. It is the Rivendell. It is completely transparent in that regard too. And as, um, as Lady Sorka is calling out here, well, Lake Town is also um, Esgaroth and the Lonely Mountain is also Erebor. And there are other names that we associate with these places, which are less, well, huh. See, I was going to say which were less suited to a juvenile audience, but the truth is that, that Tolkien just loved this. Tolkien just loved the drawing from ancient language of new name. This is why, as we discussed at the time, Beorn is simply the Anglo-Saxon word for bear. It is as literal as you can be. And there is, uh, I'm going to mess this up. There is a line of kings. I don't believe it's the kings of Numenor. Maybe some of you can remind me here, those of you who have, have studied Tolkien in some depth. But there is a line of kings buried deep in Tolkien's extended corpus, wherein the name of each king is literally just an old Anglo-Saxon or, or Germanic or, or old English word for king. So the entire line is simply a, a repetition of that same name and that same idea. 
this is is something that Tolkien is very fond of doing, I think. Yeah. Good. Yes, Nikki says, I feel like Lake Town was a real turning point for Thorin. He is finally able to let his nobility show, which he hasn't been able to do for a while. Completely. Yes, yes. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And we're talking about how much we like, we, we, we end up with Thorin. Yes, yes. Good, good. Um, great. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the entire... Rohan, the, the king's kings of Rohan, says Danielle. Thank you so much. Yes, of course. The Rohirrim, yes, good. <laughs> Couldn't place it. Of course, it's Anglo-Saxon, so it should be Rohan. I should have thought of that. But yes, yes, of course. Good. Yes. Okay, guys, uh, it is running late, and I'm afraid I have a hard out. So I think this is going to pretty much do it. I think we will return to um, Lake Town at the very beginning of next week's session. So in fact, yes, let's make this, let's make this something of a, a class project. If you have thoughts on Lake Town, and in particular, in particular, I think on that transition back out of fairy into the real world, that, that stark shift in tone and purpose, Send me your thoughts on that. You can email me, alistair at storywonk.com. That's A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R at storywonk.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at PaperBullets. Or you can stop by the Storywonk forum, forum.storywonk.com. Next time, we are going to look at the next two chapters. It's two chapters again next week. Chapters 11 and 12 on the doorstep and inside information. That's 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, Thursday, March the 16th, 2017. And if you are in any way interested in there and back again, if you are in any way interested in any of the seminar series that I have produced over the last few years, if you are in any way interested about what the future holds for seminar series of that sort, stay tuned. Before we talk again next week, there will be announcements, big announcements, capital B, capital A, just like elves are good people, capital G, capital P. There are going to be some some announcements. I'm still finalizing details. I'm not meaning to be quite as cryptic as I'm sounding right now. I, I don't actually have like a big secret to withhold, but I will tell you, I, I promise just as soon as it's all finalized, but there will be some announcements. There will be some some transitions happening over the course of the next week. It is, it is really profoundly exciting. And uh, if you're interested in the kind of discussions that we've had over the course of the last couple of years throughout the seminar series with, with Dear Mr. Potter and In Want of a Wife, looking ahead to American Gods, which is going to start week after next Stay tuned for a final date and time for that too. Looking ahead to more Harry Potter. Looking ahead to to uh, to um, talking about Thomas Hardy. Talking about all kinds of things. There, there's so much to discuss. We're going to get a lot to uh, a lot of good discussion out of it, I'm sure. So stay tuned for big announcements, guys. Thank you all so much for joining me this evening. I uh, hope says I'm going to become a twenty dollar patron one day just to get you to discuss Dragon Age, Alistair. I will discuss Dragon Age at any time. At the drop of a hat, I will discuss Dragon Age. I may have to discuss Mass Effect Andromeda first. I'm very excited for that. Um, I am actually, for those of you who might be interested in this, oh, actually, this is this is Tolkien-related, because I'm thinking about streaming a little bit of uh, Middle-Earth Shadows of Mordor, which is a game that plays baffling, ruinous hell with Tolkien's continuity, with, with, with Tolkien's secondary creation. It is bad Tolkien, but it is an interesting piece of adaptation, and it is a rather fun game. So I'm thinking about streaming some of that and talking more about video game narrative in the future. That's, again, part of the big announcement next week, you guys. That will do it, I think, for today. 
Have a really great week, you guys. Uh, as I said, get in touch and let me know your thoughts on Lake Town and if you have any other comments about this week's reading. And I will be back with you next week. Until then, take care.